Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. Man, I had a great time with you guys uh, last time, so I'm, I was anxious to get back on the mic again talking some more about Kwanzaa and uh, talking about my show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in the Western Hemisphere and Western civilization. My name is Clarence Jones. Happy to be here, your host today. I will use my show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different types of black people to gather around. People don't know this. People think black people are one monolith group of people that all look the same, think the same, and act the same. And that's absolutely not the case. And that's absolutely one of the major problems it's faced over the generations. So I, I believe Kwanzaa should be taken and turned into a year-round system uh, instead of a once-a-year holiday. And so and, and a fair question is why, if I, want, if I want to place so much emphasis on centralized culture and the ability to utilize Kwanzaa, a fair question is why did I choose Kwanzaa as that platform? And uh, the answer, of course, is Kwanzaa is a platform that is African. It is of Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe in Africa. So it is inclusive to all different types of people, all different types of African people. Uh, Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all black people could rally around. And I think that would help us with our camaraderie. It would help us with our familiarity. It would help us with our continuity. And then it would create more com camaraderie, you know, and an enhanced ability to organize and coordinate and orchestrate as one cohesive group, which we rarely do, you know. The results, again, of all these processes that I've just mentioned are what is called unity. And unity is an ingredient that has been lacking in the black population and has been a major problem or the root of many of its struggles, the root cause of many of its struggles, at the root of many of its struggles and challenges, and been a major impediment to its ability to deal with adversities, struggles and enemies as one force. So that's why I want to take my show to use it to make that case for the need of a central culture in the black population and for the practicality of using Kwanzaa as that cultural platform. Okay, so I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a pro athlete, current events and books I've read as illustrations of that need of a centralized culture in the black population. So I opened this show about the need of a central culture and how Kwanzaa can be that central culture and how, you know, the lack of a central culture has been a problem historically for the black population. I guess the most important question, one of the most important questions we need to get into is what, you know, what is culture? So like I said, since I've dedicated this show as an illustration of that need of a central culture in the black race, and to examine the, the consequences of not having that central culture, the, the, you know, the, the 
the the glowing you know, the 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 main question should be what is what is culture in the first place and why is it so important and of course culture is basically a playbook for an ethnic group it is a playbook for a nation it is a playbook for a company it's a playbook for a sports team it's a playbook for any organization or entity any group of people that wants to do something collectively, that has a goal. Their goal is to win. Their goal, sometimes your goal is to survive. Sometimes your goal is to get information to people behind you. Sometimes your goal is to build something collectively. And so culture is that playbook that's critical in that fact, in, in you know, the whole process of the group. Culture is a coming together of values, beliefs, customs. Uh, acquiring symbols that acknowledge the culture. Culture must be learned. You're not born with it. Your uncle gives it to you. Your mother and father gives it to you. Your brother and sister gives it to you. Certainly your cousins give you uh, your culture, teach you your culture. All of these are critical points to what makes a culture, uh, you know, what makes it. Culture is economic and strategic planning for a race. It is acquisition. It is um, specific places to educate and how to educate. Culture is transporting history of the, yeah, it actually transports the history of the race, you know, through language, through, you know, through identities. Uh, it is a connecting, it is a connecting point for the race and its ancestral rituals and successful procedures. It use, uh, culture uses uh, symbols, flags, and artifacts. And it's a culture is a center point uh, for, for the rituals. I guess it's a center point of the group's rituals, birth and death rituals of that race that connect it together and make it a race, literally. It is the collective spirit of a race. Culture teaches the race how to love one another, educate and work with, the, with one another, punish one another, um, argue with one another, correct one another, arbitrate issues with one another. Culture is critical for all of that. Uh, this, culture teaches you how to take care of the old. Boy, culture is important. <laughs> culture is a template for the race uh, that with, without it, the liter the, literally the race cannot exist as a cooperative entity. Culture is a platform for the race that without it, it literally can barely exist. Culture is very important, you know. And so... What, what are things that only culture can do? Culture can, is the only thing that can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can properly dispute life, uh, distribute life-saving customs and, and uh, processes. Um, only culture can help you develop your knowledge relative to your people, meaning 
knowing how great you are, knowing how great your race is or the things that you've done in the past that are worthy of respect. Um, culture can create symmetry between the classes, rich and poor. Culture can create symmetry between old and young. And culture is a specific way in which a people love each other, love the race, and ultimately love everyone else on the planet. Culture is a, a platform for life. Very important. These are all the critical components, not all of them, but some of the critical components to culture and why it's so important and why not having that has definitely, you know, hurt the black population. And I guess when I look at the, the world today and I see the struggles in uh, the African-American community uh, dealing with COVID, uh, dealing with the, the, the virus, and I remember when COVID first hit and it was first coming out, I knew that the black community was going to be hit hard. I knew we were going to uh, be one of the groups uh, most, you know, devastated by it and, and just really punished by this virus because I knew we had a disproportionate number of what they call the underlying uh, medical issues. It basically obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, hypertension, all, and then stress. All these things kind of run rapid, run rapid throughout the black community. And let's face it, COVID-19 fed on that. And then we had a lot of people without insurance that couldn't go, that didn't get checked regularly, uh, regular checkups. All those came back to haunt us in COVID in this last, these last 10 months. And we were definitely punished by that. That is ultimately a cultural thing. It was not part of our culture to be proactive as we could have and should have. It was not part of our culture to be more into health and exercise like we should have. That was a consequence of it. And one of the consequences, and then there were economic issues and in, in, as far as our wealth creation has definitely not been strong, that impacts your healthcare. And so all these things, you know, people just don't understand how important culture is and not having a centralized culture has consequences, you know, for any ethnic group. And so as we look at some of the things that have hurt the black community, uh, the African-American community, not having a strong culture, uh, we now, I'd like to look at what groups have benefited, you know, if there are groups that have benefited from having a centralized culture. So, uh, as I said before, since centralized culture is a key ingredient that has been missing in the black race for generations and an important component to the survival and prosperity of the race, are there historic examples of a strong centralized culture helping a particular ethnic group? I like to look at a lot of groups. Um, I'm focusing now on the Jewish community 
but you one can look at the Japanese community in the, in the books I've read. Um, there are diasporas all over this world of, of Arab groups, of, of uh, Korean groups, and I hope in this show to get a chance to look at all of them. But right now, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading with the Jewish um, uh, Jewish books, and um, I've read a couple, and I've read a book on ethnic groups, and uh, it talked about you know their culture and how that's helped them. And so this group, uh, when we talk about the Jewish population and Jewish uh, ethnic group as a culture, this ethnic group has been consistently persecuted uh, and resented for thousands of years going back to the Middle Ages. They were used as tax collectors and representatives of the feudal lords and the kings. There were economic overseers in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, um, in those lands, resulting in what is called anti-Semitism. So the, the king <laughs> did this um, you know, for military science, you know, strategically. The Jewish people were known for not conforming to other people's culture, so they were kind of outsiders wherever they went. That played well for the lords and the kings because if they're sending them across Europe to be their overseers and tax collectors and sheriffs and to work on their behalf, work on behalf of the kings, it meant that the likelihood of the Jewish people siding with the the, the serfs, basically, and the uh, the serfs, the serfs, and they weren't citizens; they were subjects. So the kings and lords' subjects were people that you know didn't necessarily have rights, but had tolls and taxes that needed to be paid to the king. So he sent the Jewish people out, uh, out there to do this as far as tax collecting, and the chances of them siding with the serfs and the, and the subjects was not as strong because they weren't like them. And so the, the, the kings were using that as strategy. And so that strategy worked uh, too well, but there was a lot of resentment of the Jews in Eastern Europe. And so that resulted with violent clashes, violent backlashes of what are called pogroms, uh, pogroms began in Europe. And these are basically lynchings and terrorizing of Jews and killing them, burning down their homes. And um, they simply were not willing to assimilate. And so they were easy targets. So these are the things that the Jewish population faced, but they still overcame. You know, they still were a people that were successful economically. And so one of the things they had going for them uh, was one thing they, they did. They took away the ability to, for Jewish people to own land. Uh, it was illegal to marry Jews. Uh, and so they were completely disenfranchised in the areas 
that they went into because people did not trust them. And so, because they wouldn't assimilate. So the Jew, Jewish people, the Jewish man and, and family were forced to become middlemen. So they were tradesmen. Um, they were merchants. They were people that shipped things overseas. And so now this interesting thing happened for them and it benefited them since the Jewish people were equally resented wherever they went, the best places and people for them to do business with were other Jews. So that created what is called the Jewish diaspora. And that is that network. And that's something that the black race, to my knowledge, does not really have. We, they talk about it intellectually, but a diaspora is a cultural network that exists with an ethnic group globally that allows the ethnic group to do business with each other, to socialize with each other, to do political things with each other, to communicate with each other back and forth. Now, to have a diaspora, you really need a common language. To have a diaspora, you, need, you really need a common culture. The Jewish race had a common culture and they had two common languages. So as the Jewish populations were ousted from the places and sometimes they were just kicked out of places they dispersed all over the world and they did business with again the best person for them to do business with uh were other jews so that's how the diaspora uh created the, the economic diaspora existed was created with Jewish merchants doing business with other jews globally in different countries so if he was in spain he may do business in the Middle East. If he's in Europe, he may do business in the United States of America. Uh, there were a lot of uh, diamond jewelers in South Africa that did that ship jewels all over the world to America, Europe, and the Middle East. That is the Jewish diaspora. So this is where their centralized culture helped them, uh, they helped their economic prosperity. Uh, they have a culture of placing a lot of importance on education and a, a lot and and as a culture they do a lot of debating amongst themselves about their history and and religious and and social and they tend to do that uh pretty regularly so this has aided them in becoming doctors and lawyers so here's where their culture helped them. They were great entertainers because of their great oratory skills. So the vaudeville uh, that a lot of the American entertainment system was basically built off of vaudeville was, I think, you know what? It was actually, vaudeville was originally done in all Yiddish, which is the Jewish language because so many of these performers and entertainers were in fact Jews. And so, but they have a history, part of their culture, discussion and debate, talking in front of people. And so many of the great entertainers came out of vaudeville. but that is a Jewish product to my knowledge. So we have that, uh, that uh, part of their culture that helped them. Uh, Jewish people are, 
for, for whatever reason, they are, if there's anything new, either is because they read a lot or because they are, are not, they're not necessarily accepted fully in the ecosystems in which they reside. For whatever reason, if there's anything new, technology, new idea, they flock to it. So um, communism was called Jewish Bolshevism. Adolf Hitler called that, called communism Jewish Bolshevism, because they considered communism and Bolshevism, uh, both, you know, they, they considered communism a Jewish plot and Bolshevism a Jewish thing. And definitely um, Hitler, Mussolini, all the fascists in Western Europe Western Europe looked at communism in that way. But the fact is, it was something new. And as a culture, Jewish people of all generations tend to flock to anything new technologically, socially, economically. They have interest in it, which makes them very, you know, it gives them a foothold on any new technology that comes out, you know. Uh, Facebook or anything, anything like that, they tend to flock to and are able to take advantage of it. That is a cultural thing that has helped them. So those are ideas um, that I've noticed and things that I've seen that have given, you know, the, the Jewish population a leg up that are cultural. And so that to me, is something to look at. Uh, if we want to look at what's helped the Jewish race, which I believe is their centralized culture, uh, we now want to look at uh, things that have hurt ethnic groups by having a decentralized culture. You know, how has that helped? How has that hurt ethnic groups? And not just Africans. You know, you, to... It's other people as well. We really need to look at uh, how China and India were both conquered and colonized by Great Britain, a, a, a country much smaller. They basically colonized both India and, um, and we'll have to, you know, as time goes on, I'm hoping to get into this deeper, but both India and China are massive countries that uh certainly much bigger than Great Britain. And of course, Great Britain is known for having a great uh, Navy and being able to dominate the seas. And, you know, that creates commerce and creates economy. But how could they go into China and go into in India and colonize both India and China when both of those countries are massively bigger than Great Britain? You would think they would have armies that could stop the military, you know, the British military. But the fact remains that both of those countries were factionalized. They were tribalized. They were, they were cut into pieces. There was no central culture. There was no central. There were basically in China and India, the groups were fighting each other more than they were fighting the British, which was an advantage to Great Britain, which allowed Great Britain to, to conquer it, you know. And so we have to we have to be honest about that and looking at 
if we're trying to come up with a, a solution for ourselves, we have to be honest about the, the mistakes that poor people have made, the mistakes that black people have made that have aided other people in trying to conquer and take advantage of their resources. And so this was, this was absolutely a, uh, something that hurt them and hurt those countries and, and allowed a much smaller country to dominate and control them. So I want to look at now into, well, we still can't, we can't forget about, um, we still can't forget about the black population and it's being decentralized and how that has hurt uh, our political aspirations and, and, and kept us from being um, a dominant power in our own right. And so when we look at the black race and the lack of a centralized culture and how it hurt, it literally, basically, apartheid existed in South Africa because of the tribalism of the South Africans. So it wasn't just that whites came to South Africa and conquered it. There were massive numbers of African people in South Africa, but in the end, they were not one force, and that worked to the advantage of the Boer. So let's look at South Africa and its history, its brief history. South Africa were, had Boers, uh, Dutch, who became the Boers, Dutch settlers came to South Africa, and they settled there. They got along, apparently, with the Africans initially. And the Africans uh, lived there. There wasn't slavery. And, uh, you know, I think this was while the slave trade was, well, it was right after the slave trade. And uh, so they weren't trying to abduct blacks to bring them to the United States. But, you know, they still, there still was, there wasn't an agreement between them. They just got along. You know, they weren't a nation, to my knowledge, or anything like that, but they got along. The problem happened in South Africa is when there was discovery of all of the riches, the minerals, the diamonds, the coal, and how lucrative uh, that could be in that, that parcel of land. Initially, South Africa was mainly a, a stopping point for the British it was a colony of Great Britain. It was a stopping point for its navy, a refueling point. Remember, the British Navy was very powerful, but if you have a powerful navy, you need places to refuel your ships. And so South Africa was a critical point for that. But what ended up happening, people discovered how lucrative and valuable the land was. Once that happened, the Boers... Uh, got, you know, they, they started politicking amongst themselves and realized the value of the land here and what could, and the potential, potential riches and the, and the life changes that, uh, that this offered them. And so they began forming their own power pockets to take control of the land. Now, initially, the Boers would get into it with the, the British because the Boers were very independent. They didn't want to be controlled by the British because they know the British are there to make money for Great Britain. 
they're trying to make money for themselves. So there were times where the Boers, the the, the Dutch ancestry whites, that's who the Boers are, would would literally work with the Africans against the British. And they would have raids and, and everything to try to keep the British from just completely dominating um, South Africa because they knew that they were going to dominate South Africa for its own interests. So they did that first. Then, of course, they eventually started working with the great the Brits against the Africans because the Africans had the numbers and there were massive numbers of African tribes around there. And they wanted to kind of, I guess, clear them out like the Indians. They had economic aspirations for the land, and so there were times where the, the Boers and the British would work against the South Africans, uh, you know, the, the native Africans, South Africans. Ultimately, in the turn of the century, 1900, the Boers actually declared war, went to war against Great Britain. Uh, and they couldn't settle their differences. There was a war. The Boers actually lost the war to Great Britain. And so, but oddly enough, out of this Boer War arise uh, apartheid, which was a system that was a minority rule system that gave power to the Boers over the massive numbers of African Americans. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not African Americans. African Americans, they'd be in America. <laughs> so, not African Americans, but. South African natives. And so uh, they did that, and the Boers lost the war, but the, oh, so the apartheid was, a, you know, apartheid, minor, a white minority rule system in this majority black region, this majority black country. Apartheid happened because when the Boers and British ended the war, the Boer War, they had to negotiate. And so in the negotiation, the Boers said, we still want to live here. Our numbers are small, but we want to maintain our quality of life and we want to con con maintain control or some type of influence in this country. And so we'll help. we won't fight you, Great Britain, who the only reason you want this country is you want the goods and services, you want the raw materials to use in your empire. We won't fight you, but you will have to give us a free hand here and give us an advantage where we control South Africa. This is what the Boers, uh, this is the agreement that the Boers made with the great, with the great, with the British, excuse me. The British, I don't think they were happy about it, but they agreed to it. And here's the reason. The main reason that Great Britain negotiated and compromised with the Boer South African whites to create apartheid was that the Boers South Africans were a much smaller group than the Africans. But since they were unified and had a central culture and central Af uh, central essential language and central, you know, centralized language, they were still the military threat to Great Britain, even though they lost the war. So if Great Britain, you won the war 
and you're trying to, this is your colony, you're trying to get goods and services out of, out of this colony, the biggest threat to my goods and, goods and services are raw materials, coal, um, diamonds, and, and what have you. The biggest threat, military threat, is still the Boer white South African. And so why would they be the biggest threat to the British Empire as opposed to the massive number of Africans that occupied that area? And of course, the reason was all those Africans were tribalized. They were all different tribes. They were not one cohesive group. Thus, therefore, they posed no real threat to British rule and British economics. The, the threat was the African, was the, the Boer South African. And so an accommodation had to be made with this. And so that is the reality of, you know, not having a centralized culture, how it's hurt the black population. And so, and, and to go further into it, in the book, uh, the great author, Chancellor Williams, wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization. Now we're going to move on from South Africa. We're going to look at West Africa. Uh, West, the West African population of black people that occupied West Africa were actually refugees from East Africa, where they built singular civilizations and societies um, and having their own centralized language, one centralized language that's unknown thus far. Because of natural disaster, migration of the Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began migrating across the continent to the western portion of Africa. Uh, as this began, as, as this happened, they began splitting up into groups, different types of groups, forming their own tribes with their own tribal languages and their own tribal cultures, with one African country having up to 100 tribes. And so, of course, if you have one country with 100 tribes, that's literally one country basically having 100 races inside of it. Um, that is not a good deal, making it very vulnerable because it, you know, it's hard to come together as one state. Having no central state, the European incursions were unchecked, and instead of uniting to stop the slave trade and to stop the slavers coming in and, and kidnapping black people and taking them to the, the new colonizing Western Hemisphere, uh, they actually caused infanticidal wars. Uh, so they began fighting each other to get slaves to give to the white men. So these are the, the, the fragmentation in the African-American community, in the African-American community, simply made it vulnerable, you know, to all the dominations, to, to be dominated by outside groups. And, and with the reality that the black population, the black race, has it needed to maintain hasn't needed to run its own civilization in a couple of thousand years. And so, but it all start, stems from not being, not having a centralized culture. And so, 
this this has hurt uh clearly hurt the black population and um and so that it hurt us back then and it hurts us today and so one way to look at that uh honestly is to go over some of my experiences being an african america and not having a oneness not having unity not being the same uh not being um one nation you know not being one ethnic group having one voice and and one heartbeat uh as a kid when i grew up uh, both my parents were educated and uh they we lived in a nice neighborhood it was a working class neighborhood but we all i always had a, a sense that we were different from everyone else i always had a sense that i wasn't like my neighbors and I, I also, you felt that little bit of resentment. You felt like you're not one of us type of deal. Uh, that was as a kid, um, and, and I think that's being educated black. Um, I also recall as a kid, and I call this false, comp- uh, false competition in the black community. False competition, competition is something that's good for people, Okay. Um, it, it, it inspires you to be the best that you can be. Good competition causes you to, like you said, be the best you can be. When you use, when you lose, you lose without alibi, you lose without without excuses. And ultimately when you lose, it makes you better at whatever you do. If you're an athlete, a loss, if you learn from it, you should be better. You know, you should be a better competitor. If you're a person, if someone outdoes you, okay, you look at, okay, what didn't you do? That makes you a better person. So false competition uh, is competition that really doesn't make anybody stronger or make anyone better. I've noticed a lot of that in the black community, particularly growing up. Now, so we have the initial alienation, having educated parents, being around non-educated blacks, and the little resentments that you feel, there's also a false competition with the middle to upper middle class black people being competitive, hyper-competitive, jealous of each other, not happy when someone succeeds. I remember my cousin um, did something well in football, and now this uh, cousin, nice guy, uh, nice family, my uncle was a professor, so they were upwardly mobile, middle-class blacks just like us. And so he was big, I was big, and uh, we were all, I think we were in middle school, and uh, he did something in football, and he could bench press 200 pounds. And I just remember my, his girl, his sister, saying, okay, uh, what do you bench, Clarence? Like that, like they call specifically to, you know, kind of compete with each other. And you see that dynamic at the family reunions. You see that little, you know, I'm doing better than you and, and, and not happy when someone else is doing well. And, and when he didn't do as well as I did in football, you know, it kind of wasn't brought up again, but I just noticed those little things and I call it false competition in that, that we're not inspired as a, as a race to like compete with Asians. We're not inspired to compete with 
um, Jews are known as doctors and lawyers. You know, so to me, if we were truly competitive, we would look at those ethnic groups and be like, okay, we're here, but we got to be doing what these people are doing. You know, we need to be the doctors and lawyers like these people. We need to be doing, be in the sciences like the Asians and, and competing, showing that we have scientists as well. We do, but it's not, you don't get a sense that this is important in the black community. You get a sense that your cousin who's middle class too wants to do better than you, you know, and you kind of, you know, telling their business. It's just, I, and I call that false competition. And so these are the things, those are my those are some of my experiences um, as a young person, you know, that show that showing me that lack of, of oneness in our race that uh, we need to work on. When I went to college, again, now I'm Theo Huxtable from the Cosby show and, you know, not really fitting it, not really. Um, most of the kids that played football were inner city kids or poor kids from the South or rural areas that were there on scholarship, you know, good athletes working hard. And here I am not really, you know, not really fitting in that well with them. And so, and, and unfortunately to, to, and to be honest with you, I would actually, I had more in common with the white guys that were from the suburbs that, and then, then the, the brothers that were, and, and so, there was that little bit of not fitting in. So these are some of my observations and experiences, um, excuse me, that uh, I've had that, you know, not having that central culture is, 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 is definitely has affected us as a overall group, our team concept and our unity concept. My, my sister is a light skinned African-American female. And uh, I remember her being ostracized a little bit for being light-skinned. I remember that a uh, little bit of resentment because of her skin complexion. It's funny, we talk about dark-skinned people and, and, and not being considered pretty, which is definitely an issue in our community. But literally, <laughs> light-skinned African-Americans experience ostrac being ostracized and being ridiculed by people as well. So <clears throat> all these, to me, go into not having a central culture, not teaching each other to, to, you know, your culture teaches you to work with your neighbor. Your culture teaches you to love yourself. Your culture should teach you to love your neighbor. Love people um, that all of you, you know, are all part of a, of a gang. You're part of a team. You're part of a, a culture. You're part of a, a moving, living organism. That is your race. And so you should love it and love yourself. And so, and it should actually technically make you a better human being because you should have empathy for other races that love themselves. We want to celebrate and, and love ourselves as well. So these are the, the things that I've experienced, uh, some of the things that I've experienced and, and, uh, and observed and that's led me to see, led me to believe that a critical component in the black race that's missing is that centralized culture. And so there, there are consequences, you know, of that. And so the consequences 
of the black man not needing, I believe, and I think this is a critical point, uh, the consequences of black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilization and societies. And so it's been thousands of years since he's needed to do that. He's been in other people's societies and other people's countries. He's done well individually, but he has not done well collectively, where they could collectively take power, collectively move ahead, And so there are consequences to that. And so the consequences have been the black man is remedial in military science. Military science is the ability to evaluate your ecosystem and what it takes to conquer your ecosystem, what it takes to be successful in your ecosystem, what it takes to survive your ecosystem, what it takes to compete, what what do you need to deal with whatever confronts you and the strategic planning and prep, all of that goes into what is called military science. Military science works for an individual. It works for a country. It works for a race. It works for, it works for everyone. That is military science. So when, when I say, here's military science. When I say more black people should have voted in the Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump election that in fact voted for the Donald Trump, uh, not Donald Trump, but um, Barack Obama, John McCain um, um, presidency, presidential election before that, when I say more black people should have voted in the Hillary Clinton election than the Barack Obama election, that is military science. And so, uh, and then he, as well as Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. Now, on the surface, it's saying, I'm saying that black people should like, should have liked Hillary Clinton more than they liked Barack Obama, which, of course, is not realistic. Um, he's such a charismatic, dominant leader. You know, we hadn't seen that before, so everyone gravitated towards him. I'm not saying more people should have liked Hillary, but the circumstances surrounding the Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump election, where you have half the country detailing, you know, there was a, a white nationalist movement clearly starting uh, because of the fear. I think there's immigration issues and people, um, and, and, you know, I think 9-11 played a part in that as well. Just the uncertainty in America that made them ruthlessly reach back to the old ways. And President Trump, quite frankly, um, benefited from that and took advantage of that. Military science is the black population in the United States should have had the red flags and understood how important that election was. That is military science. The black population did the opposite. They did not vote at the levels that they normally did, or, or they certainly didn't vote in the levels that they voted for Barack Obama. That is military science. Military science is not, it's not saying we like Hillary Clinton more than Barack Obama. Military science is understanding that this election is this, where we're going now as a country, we haven't been this direction in 100 years. This is frightening. We need to take action. We didn't. That is military science. The black population, the black man lacks that. He lacks power creation and acquisition. Uh, they, and he lacks, he has an inability to even 
understand how all those things work together. So, and of course, this made him vulnerable to predatory ethnic groups. It's also un- unknowingly made him a marginal ally at best. You know, since he doesn't understand the, the, the chess match of power, the chess match of politics, the chess match of, of economics, he's very, he, he's, he's very he's vulnerable. He's easily manipulated. And actually, in the Hillary Clinton election, uh, the Russians did a lot to, yeah, there, there actually was a lot of Russian interference that caused a lot of blacks to not vote. But they knew that they could, they knew that they could influence the black people easily. That's why the so-called black community, I say, is quick to alienate, disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. Now, this is my, and this is my NFL days. It's it's an odd thing. Um, being a pro athlete, I just remember, and again, no one plays professional football or any professional sport to play it. You play it to be the greatest of all time. Everyone plays professional sports to be Michael Jordan. Everyone plays professional sports to be Muhammad Ali. And now we have Serena Waite. Okay, so no one plays a sport to just play it and to be average. So it's a humbling experience. So you're not walking around. The average guy is simply not walking around saying, hey, I play professional sports. Because that is, we don't think that way. At least most of the people don't, that I know. And if you, this is the way you need to think if you're going to play it for a long time. You definitely, if you're an average athlete and you think you've arrived, you're not going to be playing that sport long because there's always somebody trying to bump your spot. So as a result, we tend to not be walking around, you know, advertising or looking to, to be worshipped because we play professional sports. It's an interesting dynamic that I've noticed with black people where they, they hear who you are. They don't know who you are. And, but they know either they found out that you're a football player, professional athlete, and what my people tend to do, they literally come and stare at you and wait for you to acknowledge them. They're, for some reason, they're not going to say, hey, how you doing? I heard you play professional football. Black people tend to not do that. And that's been my experience, not for one time, not for uh, two or three times, a bunch of times. Since 1991, when I'm around black people, my people, they, there's this need to not acknowledge their idea of my status, which I don't even consider having it because I'm again trying to be Michael Jordan I'm not Michael Jordan I'm not Magic Johnson so but they are not trying to acknowledge you but yet are still waiting for you to acknowledge them so that little those little things I've noticed that you know that this is this is a we, we just don't have that continuity we just don't Respecting each other is just not an emphasis with us. We're more important than making sure you don't disrespect me. That's definitely the black world, the black way. And um, I I call this, um, this ecosystem, which is what it is, of hostile discontinuity, I call this black zombie nation. And Black Zombie Nation is black people that are not aware of the power they have. They're not aware of how to use it. 
They're not aware of how to help each other. They're not aware of how to help themselves. And so the black zombie nation is not understanding how important it is for black people to vote for Hillary Clinton. Black zombie nation is black people um, not wanting to go away from all our customs and traditions and not wanting to be criticized. You see, you see that a lot in the black community. They don't want, no one's supposed to be criticized. You're supposed to be able to, everyone can do whatever they want to. Uh, don't criticize women for having babies out of wedlock. Don't criticize, um, uh, you know, don't, don't talk about, don't talk about black men doing things that they shouldn't be doing. So you, you kind of have that in that black zombie nation instead of a, a race of people that want to compete, that want to take care of its own business. And so, in that in that narrative, you tend to need to be harder on yourselves than other people are hard on you. You're harder on yourselves than other people are hard on you because you expect more from yourself than other people expect from you. And so with Black Zombie Nation, you don't really see that. And um, and and that hurts us publicly. That hurt that hurts us presently. That affects our future. If we have no strong continuity, if we have no game plan for us to get better, no game plan for us to be stronger, or no game plan for us to learn and to, to look around us and, 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 and look at what we've done wrong and correct it. See, that's what winning is. All winning is is actually losing but learning from it. 60 seconds. And so... I appreciate your time this week, and I, I got into it a little bit. Uh, still had some more stuff to talk about, <laughs> but man, I like I love doing this stuff. This has been pretty cool. I like it. Uh, I appreciate your time. I hope I've made my case for the need for a culture in the black, a central culture in the black population, and for the possibility that Kwanzaa presents in providing for that. Uh, thanks a lot. Hope to talk to you guys soon.